Prologue The Habit Cure She was the scientist's favorite participant Lisa Allen according to her file was 34 years old had started smoking and drinking when she was 16 and had struggled with obesity for most of her life at one point in her mid 20s collection agencies were hounding her to recover $10,000 in debts an old resume listed her longest job as lasting less than a year the woman in front of the researchers today however was lean and vibrant with the toned legs of a runner she looked a decade younger than the photos in her chart and like she could out exercise anyone in the room according to the most recent report in her file lisa had no outstanding debts didn't drink and was in her 39 month at a graphic design firm how long since your last cigarette one of the physicians asked starting down the list of questions lisa answered every time she came to this laboratory outside bethesda maryland almost 4 years she said and i've lost 60 pounds and run a marathon since then she had also started a masters degree and bought a home it had been an eventful stretch the scientists in the room included neurologists psychologists geneticists and a sociologist for the past 3 years with funding from the national institutes of health they had poked and prodded lisa and more than 2 dozen other former smokers chronic overeaters problem drinkers obsessive shoppers and people with other destructive habits all of the participants had one thing in common they had remade their lives in relatively short periods of time the researchers wanted to understand how so they measured subjects vital signs installed video cameras inside their homes to watch their daily routines sequenced portions of their dna and with technologies that allowed them to peer inside people's skulls in real time washed as blood and electrical impulses flowed through their brains while they were exposed to temptations such as cigarette smoke and lavish meals the researchers goal was to figure out how habits work on a neurological level and what it took to make them change i know you have told this story a dozen times the doctor said to lisa but some of my colleagues have only heard it second hand would you mind describing again how you gave up cigarettes sure lisa said it started in cairo the vacation had been something of a rash decision she explained a few months earlier her husband had come home from work and announced that he was leaving her because he was in love with another woman it took lisa a while to process the betrayal and absorb the fact that she was actually getting a divorce there was a period of mourning then a period of obsessively spying on him following his new girlfriend around town calling her after midnight and hanging up then there was the evening lisa showed up at the girlfriend's house drunk pounding on her door screaming that she was going to burn the condo down it wasn't a great time for me lisa said 
I had always wanted to see the pyramids and my credit cards weren't maxed out yet. So, on her first morning in Cairo, Lisa woke at dawn to the sound of the call to prayer from a nearby mosque. It was pitch black inside her hotel room. Half blind and jet lagged, she reached for a cigarette. She was so disoriented that she didn't realize until she smelled burning plastic that she was trying to light a pen, not a Marlboro. She had spent the past four months crying, binge eating, unable to sleep and feeling ashamed, helpless, depressed and angry all at once. Lying in bed, she broke down. It was like this wave of sadness. She said, I felt like everything I have ever wanted had crumbled. I couldn't even smoke right. And then I started thinking about my ex-husband and how hard it would be to find another job when I got back and how much I was going to hate it and how unhealthy I felt all the time. I got up and knocked over a water jug and it shattered on the floor. And I started crying even harder. I felt desperate. Like I had to change something. At least one thing I could control. She showered and left the hotel. As she rode through Cairo's written street in taxi and then onto the dirt roads leading to the Sphinx, the pyramids of Giza and the vast endless desert around them, her self-pity for a brief moment gave away. She needed a goal in her life, she thought, something to work around. So she decided, sitting in the taxi, that she would come back to Egypt and trek through the desert. It was a crazy idea, Lisa knew. She was out of shape, overweight, with no money in the bank. She didn't know the name of the desert she was looking at or if such a trip was possible. None of that mattered though. She needed something to focus on. Lisa decided that she would give herself one year to prepare. And to survive such an expedition, she was certain she would have to make sacrifices. In particular, she would need to quit smoking. When Lisa finally made her way across the desert 11 months later, in an air-conditioned and motorized tour with a half dozen other people, mind you, The carva carried so much water, food, tents, maps, global positioning system and two-way radios that throwing in a carton of cigarettes wouldn't have made much of a difference. But in the taxi, Lisa didn't know that. And to the scientist at the laboratory, the details of her trek weren't relevant because for reasons they were beginning to understand that one small shift in Lisa's perception that day in Cairo, the conviction that she had to give up smoking to accomplish her goal had touched off a series of changes that would ultimately radiate out to every part of her life. Over the next six months, she would replace smoking with jogging and that in turn changed how she ate, worked, slept, saved money, scheduled her workdays, planned for the future and so on. She'd start running half marathons and then a marathon, go back to school, buy a house and get engaged. Eventually, she was recruited into the the scientist's study and when researchers began examining images of Lisa's brain, they saw something remarkable. One set of neurological patterns, her old habits, had been overridden 
by new patterns they could still see the neural activity of her old behaviors but those impulses were crowded out by new urges as lisa's habits changed so had her brain it was on the trip to cairo that had caused the shift <clears throat> scientists were convinced or the divorce or desert trek it was a it, it was that lisa had focused on changing just one habit smoking at first everyone in the study had gone through a similar process by focusing on one pattern what is known as keystone habit lisa had taught herself how to reprogram the other routines in her life as well it's not just individuals who are capable of such shifts when companies focus on changing habits whole organizations can transform firms such as procter and gamble starbucks alcoa and target have seized on this insight to influence how works get done how employees communicate and without customers realizing it the way people shop i want to show you one of your most recent scans a researcher told lisa and near the end of her exam he pulled up a picture on a computer screen that showed images from her head when you see food these areas he pointed to a scent place near the center of her brain which are associated with craving and hunger are still active your brain still produces the urges that made you overeat however there's new activity in this area he pointed to the region closest to her forehead where we believe behavioral inhibition and self discipline starts that activity had become more pronounced each time you have come in lisa was the scientist's favorite participant because her brain scans were so compelling so useful in creating a map of where behavioral patterns habits reside within our minds you're helping us understand how a decision becomes an automatic behavior the doctor told her everyone in the room felt like they were on the brink of something important and they were when you woke up this morning what did you do first did you hop in the shower check your email or grab a donut from the kitchen counter did you brush your teeth before or after you toweled off tie the left or right shoe first What did you say to your kids on your way out the door? Which route did you drive to work when you got to your desk? Did you deal with email, chat with colleague or jump into writing writing a memo? Salad or hamburger for lunch? When you got home, did you put on your sneakers and go for a run or pour yourself a drink and eat dinner in front of the TV? All our life so far as it has definite form is but a mass of habits. William James wrote in 1892 Most of the choices we make each day may feel like the products of well considered decision making but they are not they are habits and though each habit means relatively little on its own over time the meals we order what we say to our kids each night whether we save or spend how often we exercise and the way we organize our thoughts and work routines have enormous impacts on our health productivity financial security and happiness one paper published by a duke university researcher in 2006 found that more than 40% of the actions people performed each day weren't actual decisions but habits 
William John James, like countless others from Aristotle to Oprah, spent much of his life trying to understand why habits exist. But only in the past two decades have scientists and marketers really begun understanding how habits work and more important, how they change. This book is divided into three parts. The first section focuses on how habits emerge within individual lives. It explores the neurology of habit formation, how to build new habits and change old ones, and the methods, for instance, that one ad man uses, used to push toothbrushing from an obscure practice into a national obsession. It shows how Procter & Gamble turned a spray named Febreze into a billion-dollar business by taking advantage of consumers' habitual urges, how Alcoholics Anonymous reforms lives lives by attacking habits at the core of addiction and how coach Tony Dungy reversed the fortune of the worst team in the National Football League by focusing on his players' automatic reactions to settle on-field cues. The second part examines the habits of successful companies and organizations. It details how an executive named Paul O'Neill, before he became Treasury Secretary, remade a struggling aluminium manufacturer into the top performer in the Dow Jones Industrial Average by focusing on one keystone habit, and how Starbucks turned a high school dropout into a top manager by instilling habits designed to strengthen his willpower. It describes why even the most talented surgeons can make catastrophic mistakes when a hospital's organizational habits go awry. The third part looks at the habits of societies. It recounts how Martin Luther King Jr. and the civil rights movement succeeded, in part by changing the ingrained social habits of Montgomery, Alabama, and why a similar focus helped a young pastor named Rick Warren build the nation's largest church in Saddleback Valley, California. Finally, it explores thorny ethical questions such as whether a murderer in Britain could go free if he can convincingly argue that his habit led him to kill. Each chapter revolves around a central argument. Habits can be changed if we understand how they work. This book draws on hundreds of academic studies, interviews with more than 300 scientists and executives and research conducted at dozens of companies. For an index of resources, you can check our website www.thepowerofhabit.com. It focuses on habits as they are technically defined, the choices that all of us deliberately make at some point and then stop thinking about but continue doing often every day. At one point, we all consciously decided how much to eat and what to focus on when we go to office, how often to have a drink or when to go for a jog. Then we stopped making a choice and the behavior become automatic. It's a natural consequence of our neurology. And by understanding how it happens, you can rebuild those patterns in whichever way you choose. I first became interested in the science of habits eight years ago as a newspaper reporter in Baghdad. The US military talked to me as I watched it in action is one of the biggest habit formation experiments in history. Basic training teaches soldiers carefully designed habits for how to shoot, think and communicate under fire. On the battlefield, every command that's issued draws on behavior practiced to the point of automation. 
the entire organization relies on endlessly rehearsed routines for building bases setting strategic priorities and deciding how to respond to attacks in those early days of the war when the insurgency was spreading and death tolls were mounting commanders were looking for habits they could instill among soldiers and iraqis that might create a durable peace I had been in Iraq for about 2 months when I heard about an officer conducting an impromptu habit modification program in Kufa a small city 90 miles south of the capital he was an army major who had analyzed videotapes of recent riots and had identified a pattern violence was usually preceded by a crowd of iraqis gathering in a plaza or other open space and over the course of several hours growing in size Food vendors would show up as well as spectators then someone would throw a rock or a bottle and all hell would break loose when the major met with Kufa's mayor he made an odd request could they keep food vendors out of the plazas sure the mayor said a few weeks later a small crowd gathered near the masjid al kufa or great mosque of kufa throughout the afternoon it grew in size some people started chanting angry slogans iraqi police sensing trouble radioed the base and asked up us troops to stand by at dusk the crowd started getting restless and hungry people looked for the kebab sailors normally filling the plaza but there were none to be found the spectators left the chanters became dispirited by 8 pm well everyone was gone When I visited the base near Kufa I talked to the mayor you didn't necessarily think about a crowd's dynamics in terms of habits he told me but he had spent his entire career getting drilled in the psychology of habit formation at boot camp he had absorbed habits for loading his weapon falling asleep in a war zone maintaining focus and amid the chaos of battle and making decisions while exhausted and overwhelmed He had attended classes that taught him habits for saving money, exercising each day and communicating with bunkmates. As he moved up in the ranks, he learned the importance of organizational habits in ensuring that subordinates could make decisions without constantly asking permissions and how the right routines made it easier to work alongside people he normally couldn't stand. And now as an impromptu national builder, he was seeing how crowds and cultures abided by many of the same rules. In some sense he said a community was a giant collection of habits occurring among thousands of people that depending on how they are influenced could result in violence or peace in addition to removing the food vendors he had launched dozens of different experiments in kufa to influence residents habit there hadn't been a riot since he arrived understanding habits is the most important thing i have learned in the army the major told me It's changed everything about how I see the world. You want to fall asleep fast and wake up feeling good? Pay attention to your nighttime patterns and what you automatically do when you get up. You want to make running easy? Create triggers to make it a routine. I drill my kids on this stuff. My wife and I write out habit plans for our marriage. This is all we talk about in command meetings. Not one person in Kufa would have told me that we could influence crowds by taking away the kebab stands, but once you see everything as a bunch of habits, it's like someone gave you a flashlight and a crowbar and you can get to work.
The major was a small man from Georgia. He was perpetually spitting either sunflower seeds or chewing tobacco in a cup. He told me that prior to entering the military, his best career option had been repairing telephone lines or possibly becoming a methamphetamine entrepreneur, a path some of his high school peers had chosen to less success. Now he oversaw 800 troops in one of the most sophisticated fighting organizations on earth. If I'm telling you, if a high hick like me can learn this stuff, anyone can. I tell my soldiers all the time, there's nothing you can't do if you get the habits right. In the past decade, our understanding of the neurology and psychology of habits and the way patterns work within our lives, societies and organizations have expanded in ways we couldn't have imagined 50 years ago. Now we know why habits emerge, how they change and the science behind the mechanics. We know how to break them into parts and rebuild them to our specification. We understand how to make people eat less, exercise more, work more efficiently and live healthier lives. Transforming a habit isn't necessarily easy or quick. It's, it isn't always simple. But it is possible. And now we understand how.